Engineers make the news by designing cool things, building great things, or causing spectacular disasters. Apollo 11 is famous for putting astronauts on the moon. Apollo 13 is famous for putting astronauts in extreme peril. The Curiosity rover landed on Mars. The Mars Polar Lander crashed into Mars. The Golden Gate Bridge is a spectacular landmark. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge was a spectacular failure. There are place names hardly anyone would know, except for the tragic events that happened there. Bhopal, Potter's Bar, Chernobyl, Flixborough, Seveso, Fukushima. This is a podcast about how not to be famous. You're listening to DisasterCast, Episode 1. Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them. My name is Drew Ray. Each episode of DisasterCast will be in three sections, which we'll call something old, something new, and something out of the blue. This episode, our something old, will be the Hindenburg disaster. Our something new will be an introduction to the language of safety, and our something out of the blue will be about rogue planets. So, let's get started. The sky is a terrific place, ladies and gentlemen, the smoke and the flames now, and the famous crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass, all the humanity and all the passengers screaming around it. Prior to World War I, and again during the early 1930s, Zeppelin dirigibles represented the future of luxury travel. Whilst expensive, They were faster than trains or steamliners, presenting an attractive option for business travel and for express mail service. When the Empire State Building was constructed in 1930, its spire and the 102nd floor were intended as an airship terminal. On May 6, 1937, the age of the airship ended in flames. Three days earlier, LZ-129, the Hindenburg, had departed from Frankfurt, headed for Lakehurst, New Jersey. Delayed by adverse weather, and with a further storm brewing, the airship began a landing approach just after 7pm. The tail was low, and repeated attempts were made to maintain level flight, by dropping ballast and releasing hydrogen from the gas cells at the bow. Eventually, crew were even ordered to move to the front of the airship to add weight to the nose. So, a storm brewing, a misbehaving airship, and a shifting wind. Captain Pruce, the commanding officer, ordered a tight turn to allow landing into the wind. 
At 7.21 the manoeuvre was completed, and landing ropes were dropped. At this stage, the Hindenburg was 180 feet above the ground. Two of the ground crew would later report that they saw the outer covering flapping near the rear of the airship. A few minutes later, flames appeared at or near this same spot, and crew on board the ship heard an explosion. Less than 30 seconds later, the Hindenburg was on the ground, engulfed in flames. Despite the rapid destruction of LZ-129, 62 of the 91 people on board actually survived. Proximity to an exit was the main factor in survival. Those who were killed were all deep within the airship, or trapped on the starboard side when the airship rolled slightly as it hit the ground. Survivors also owed a debt to the Navy ground crew, who ran towards the Hindenburg as it burned. Whilst there were other airship disasters, most notably the British R-101 and the USS Akron, this was only the second fatal crash of an actual Zeppelin airship in peacetime. Two fatal accidents in 2,000 flights is simply not enough data to tell us how dangerous the airships were. However, we can make a rough estimate by assuming that the underlying likelihood of accidents was somewhere between half and double the measured frequency. This gives us somewhere between 500 and 2,000 accidents per million departures. By contrast, early commercial aircraft such as the Boeing 707 and the DC-8 experienced around four fatal accidents per million departures. A fairer comparison, though, might be the very first commercial jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet 1, which began operations in 1952. There were 10 of these in operation, compared to seven commercial passenger zeppelins. In the two and a half years before the early comets were grounded, there were around 2,000 departures, with four fatal crashes. In other words, zeppelins were very dangerous compared to mature jet airplane designs, but roughly comparable to early jet flight. We'll never really know if an improved understanding of airship safety would have led eventually to low accident rates, or if the concept itself was inherently risky. The main risk of hydrogen dirigibles, of course, was hydrogen. More specifically, it was the very low energy required to ignite hydrogen, and the wide range of conditions under which hydrogen and oxygen mixtures are explosive. There were two typical scenarios in which airships burned. In the first scenario, an otherwise airworthy dirigible caught fire due to an uncontrolled ignition source. For example, LZ-6 burned when petrol was used to clean it, LZ-10 caught fire from static electricity, and the fire in LZ-18 started in the engines before spreading to the hydrogen cells. In the second scenario, the dirigible suffered structural damage in a crash, and subsequently caught fire. This was the fate of R-38 and R-101. Hindenburg apparently suffered both structural damage and ignition, but the causes were undetermined. Two credible theories suggest that the storm or the tight landing manoeuvre fractured the rigid frame of the airship, 
ripping the hydrogen cells and eventually providing a spark. Modern advocates of hydrogen-based technology, such as hydrogen fuel cells, often try to downplay the role that hydrogen played in airship accidents. They point to the materials used in covering and coating the Hindenburg as the real culprits. These arguments are contradicted by the available evidence, which despite the uncertain causes, points clearly to a massive hydrogen fire, playing the key role in all of the fatalities. Finding alternative explanations for the Hindenburg disaster is futile and unnecessary. Fuel cells store and use hydrogen in a completely different fashion to airships and have their own risks and benefits. Advocates would do better to point to the inherent danger and certain damage caused by fossil fueled vehicles. The days of hydrogen being a scary word have, along with the grandeur and luxury of zeppelins, passed into aviation history. For modern safety engineers, the fate of the Hindenburg illustrates neatly the precedence of hazard mitigation. The first question you ask yourself about outer hazard is whether it is necessarily present. For example, being a long way off the ground is dangerous, but is probably necessary for efficient travel over long distances. On the other hand, a large bag of explosive gas is probably not so necessary, and so replacing the gas with something else, or replacing the whole concept you're using to fly, is probably a good idea. Since this is the first Something New segment, it seems appropriate to kick off by discussing the language of safety. First up, what do we actually mean when we say that something is safe? Everything in life has risk associated with it, but does that mean that everything is unsafe? Perfectly clean water can kill you if you drink too much of it or trip over and drown in it. Some contaminated water can kill you if you take a small sip. It seems common sense that we should call clean water safe and contaminated water unsafe, but what do we actually mean when we say that? I think a fellow called William Lawrence hit the nail on the head back in 1976 when he said that a thing is safe if the risk associated with it is judged to be acceptable. In other words, everything has risk, but things become unsafe when this risk reaches a level that's considered to be too much. Because humans are human, we accept different amounts of risk in different situations. Most cars are more dangerous than most aeroplanes, but we still call some cars and some aeroplanes safe, and some cars and some aeroplanes unsafe. Safety is one member of a group of properties which we call dependability. In the same group, are properties such as reliability, security, availability, and maintainability. Each of them means something slightly different. You could have an aeroplane which is perfectly safe, and also perfectly unreliable. It would never take off, but it would never crash either. You could have a coffee machine which always worked, but where no one had remembered to add protection to stop people being burned. The machine would be reliable, but unsafe. To measure safety, we need to have terms describing bad things that can happen. An event where someone gets hurt, and where we didn't mean for them to get hurt, 
is an accident. If someone almost got hurt, but escaped through good luck, we call it an incident. The circumstances causing an accident or an incident are a hazard. For example, if I'm designing a set of traffic lights, I might worry about the lights being green in both directions at the same time. So I'll say that it's a hazard for both sets of lights to be green at once. I'll design my lights to make the chance of this happening as small as possible. If I get my design wrong, and the hazard actually happens, that's an incident. If two cars crash as a result, that's an accident. In safety engineering, hazards are our basic unit of management. We try to think of all the hazards that are theoretically possible, and then design a system where they are, if not impossible, then at least very unlikely. Associated with each hazard is some amount of risk. This is made up of the severity, how bad things might be, and the likelihood, the probability of the hazard occurring and leading to an accident. Something might be low risk because it has low severity. For example, a shower of rain is typically low risk because it doesn't cause a lot of harm. Something might also be low risk because it has a low likelihood. Alien invasion is low risk because it's highly unlikely to happen. Most safety engineering is concerned with identifying hazards, working out the risk associated with them, and then deciding what to do about it. If you're looking to take a vacation from our solar system, three destinations should top your list. The first and most obvious is Proxima Centauri. It's our closest neighbour, and nobody likes long-haul flights. Next we have the dual system, Alpha Centauri AB, complete with some attractive looking planets. If you're going to Proxima, you may as well visit the rest. They're often counted as a combined triple star system. Next furthest is Barnard's star. It's not much to look at, unless you can see infrared, in which case it's reasonably bright. Barnard's star is old, small, and further away than Alpha Centauri. What makes it an attractive destination is that tickets are cheap, and getting cheaper all the time. Barnard's star is heading towards us at 140 kilometers per second. Cosmically speaking, we don't have much time to get ready. Its closest point of approach is only 10,000 years away. Fortunately, it isn't going to get too close. At closest approach, it will be our nearest neighbour, but that's still several light years from being a disaster. It does raise an interesting question though. What else is out there, in deep space, heading our way? There's one object that we can already see coming. It's called Gliese 710. Best estimates say that Gliese 710, a star two-thirds the size of our own sun, will be one light-year away at nearest approach. That's close enough to have a noticeable gravitational impact, including possibly tossing comets from our Oort cloud 
into the inner solar system. At worst case, Gliese 710 could even interact with the much closer and denser Kuiper belt of asteroids. The arrival of Gliese 710 doesn't really count as a low-probability, high-consequence event, because it's certain to happen. The only good news is that we have 1.4 million years to get ready. What we really should be worried about are interstellar objects that we can't see coming. If an object is in a reasonably regular orbit around the Sun, and it's big enough to be worth tracking, then we can compute whether it's likely to intersect our own orbit. All of the effort that we put into predicting asteroid collisions with Earth is based on objects in regular orbits. If an object is coming from genuinely outer space, between the stars, our only real hope of spotting it is if it eclipses something that we're already looking at. There could be any number of interstellar planetary-sized objects heading our way. We would be very unlucky to be hit by one, but a direct hit is not needed to perturb the orbit of one or more other planets. In the very worst case, we could be visited by a black hole. Whilst there's no smoking gun, observations of a system called CID-42 appear to show two black holes which have collided, shooting one out of its home galaxy at millions of kilometres an hour. We'd have a better chance of spotting an incoming black hole than an incoming planet. The enormous gravitational pull would start to bend starlight coming from that direction. But that's not really a consolation, as there's not much we could do about it. So the real question is, what's the chance of any of this happening? Are these highly unlikely events, or do we need to plan that interstellar vacation sooner rather than later? The only honest answer is that we really don't know. It used to be believed that the strange orbits of Neptune and Pluto could best be explained by an interplanetary visitor. Even if that was true, which it probably isn't, it would only give us one data point of a planetary visitor from the whole history of the solar system. Having no past examples of an event is not proof that the event won't happen, but it does place an upper bound on the frequency of the event. The Nice model of the solar system, the currently accepted description of how things came to be as they are, explains the orbits of all of the planets without postulating any interstellar visitors. So, we have 4 billion or so years without a planet, black hole or death star ploughing through our solar system, which gives a warm and fuzzy feeling that the frequency of such events is fairly low. To understand how unlikely it is, let's do a comparison. Let's say that on average, a planet crashes through our solar system every billion years. We can be confident that that's a conservative estimate, based on our 4 billion years without such an event. So the chance of it happening in the next 100 years is less than 1 in 10 million. That's about the same chance as any given plane flight ending in disaster. It's not necessarily a fair comparison, since there are more people sharing the Earth than riding a 747 but it does give us a sense of the scale of the problem. Plane crash is a risk so small that most people, most of the time, don't even think about it. But we do expect that airlines and plane manufacturers will devote time, effort and money to the problem. Rogue planets are at about the same level of risk. Most people, most of the time, shouldn't worry, 
But this is just another reason why public spending on science is a good idea. That's it for this first episode of DisasterCast. DisasterCast will be appearing fortnightly, following roughly the same format. You can find transcripts and show notes at disastercast.co.uk. Please do visit and leave a comment if you've enjoyed the show. Questions and ideas for topics you'd like covered are always welcome. DisasterCast is made possible by an award from the I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here event. The theme tune is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer. <laughs>